The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Back in November, I did an episode of Chinese Whispers with Duncan Clark, a biographer of Jack Ma, China's richest man. At that point, Jack Ma's IPO for Ant Financial, a fintech company that he founded, was stopped at the very last minute by the Chinese Communist Party. It would have been the largest IPO in the world. It's been widely seen in the West as a way in which the CCP is controlling its leading entrepreneurs, but actually a lot of people in China were cheering. This episode is a follow-up to that to find out exactly why the Chinese public had such a different view, and partly is because of what one part of Ant Financial's business model has been doing. It's been giving out consumer loans through its app Alipay, which means that consumer loans are now able to be got at the click of a button just through an app. Sounds great, right? But many Chinese blame it for a spiralling credit culture, leading to horrifying stories of mental health problems and even suicides. I'm joined now by Ray Ma, a former venture capitalist and co-host of the podcast Tech Buzz China, to find out exactly what's going on and how legitimate this backlash against fintech is in China. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me again. To start with, can you give us an idea of the scale of things? For example, Alipay, which hosts the Huawei Just Spend function. How many people use Alipay? About a billion people in China use Alipay. So that's two-thirds of the population, pretty much. And that's pretty much everyone who's online in China. Right, right. And so of that, around half of them use Huawei. And the way that the system works seems to be that at checkout, when you're paying with Alipay, you can either choose to pay it for yourself in your debit account, or you can borrow some money from Ant Financial through the Huawei system. Is that right? Right. It works exactly like a credit card, so you don't have to start paying right away. And also, you have access to certain installment plans. How much credit you get is a matter of your credit score on your Ant Group uh, Sesame Credit system. So it's their proprietary scoring. And based on all your usage, all your you know social profile, etc., uh, all the data that they've collected, all your past transactions, you get a credit limit. And that's one example of the social credit system that, you know, we in the West hear so much about. But for this, it's only limited to Alipay and it's informed by whatever Alipay knows about you, presumably. So your spending record. Do we know yet how they evaluate that score? So there's about five main criteria that they use to calculate your credit worthiness. And it's pretty much what you would expect. It's your past payment history, how much you've transacted, and were you always paying back on time. It also looks at some other things, sort of softer factors like your, you know, what they call social factors, like your education, age, job, etc., stuff like that. So, 
And as we've talked about on this podcast before, the lending and borrowing environment in China is completely different to maybe what people are used to in the West. Small businesses often find it hard to get loans from state-owned banks. So, Ray, if this fintech, essentially this app, is making it easier for people to borrow, what's the problem? Oh, I think in many ways, like you said, because of the you know, relatively new introduction of a credit system into China, that this really alleviates a lot of people's problems when it comes to liquidity that they need to complete their either everyday purchases, or like you said, stay afloat as a small business. But I think because partly of the fact that this is a relatively new system, that a lot of people in China, especially rural Chinese, or in the less developed parts of the country are less familiar with the concept of borrowing money on credit. And because of the aggressive tactics that some of these internet lending platforms, as well as many less legitimate, uh, more illicit lenders offline, but the combination of these new funding sources and their aggressive growth tactics have led to some tragedies, I guess, that we can talk about later, where, you know, not everyone has been able to benefit in the way that we think. So a lot of people are actually probably over leveraged right now. What kind of aggressive tactics are we talking about here? Can you give us a few examples? Yeah, so again, to a Western audience, maybe this doesn't sound particularly aggressive, but you have to be in the mindset of a Chinese person who is new to credit cards, right? So prior to year 2000, there were virtually no credit cards in China. And even up until a few years ago, only about 20% of the population has access to a credit card. And so borrowing money on credit is a relatively new concept. And then, of course, to consider the fact that, as I was saying earlier, there is a pretty stark urban and rural divide in China. So you have about 400 million people who are living in what I would call urban and developed China, have pretty good incomes, lead very Western lifestyles, and can, you know, can basically manage their credit because they've they've been exposed to credit products for the last decade plus. And then you have this new burgeoning class of rural slash working class Chinese people from the less developed parts of China who are new to credit, and their incomes are substantially lower. In general, they're making less than 15,000 USD. I don't know how many pounds is that per year. So even a average use right now of Huawei credit limits is about $300 at the time of their prospectus filing. So even $300 is quite a bit for someone who has, you know, $15,000 income and not that much disposable spending at their discretion. Uh, Some of the aggressive tactics that we're talking about in light of this background information and context are basically things where some of the internet platforms are basically outsourcing their advertising to third-party service providers. And some of the advertising was really directed at shaming these rural Chinese uh, or working-class Chinese into borrowing more money than they probably needed to in order to have face. So for example, one of the most controversial Huawei ads was featuring this middle-class worker and basically saying that because he has a daughter and he wanted to give her a really nice birthday and then he dipped into his Huawei credit limit in order to give her just a nice birthday and that caused a lot of outrage on the internet because people were like why is this father who's already doing his you know job being gainfully employed and providing for his family why are we 
telling these fathers that in order to be a responsible dad, they actually need to go borrow money to give their daughter like a very fancy birthday. That is not the type of social values we want to have in the society. Uh, another one that got way more backlash actually was, I think, a little bit more extreme was from JD, where it was this uh, short video where it featured a rural Chinese man who was taking his mother on a airplane ride for the first time in China. And, you know, she wasn't feeling well, so she asked can I open the windows? Of course, this is ridiculous. You're on a plane. You cannot open the windows. And this caused just people looking at her with disdain and sort of thinking like, who is this person? Why is she on this plane? And then someone on the flight stands up and says, I have a solution. I will upgrade your mother to the front of the plane where she will feel less sick. And then he opens up his phone, opens up the JD borrowing app, and immediately gets a credit limit for thousands of dollars. And he's like, there you go. So it basically taps into the hot buttons of existing insecurities in rural Chinese people who already feel like they're being stereotyped as unworthy and second-class citizens in China. And it really, I think, ignited a lot of fury because there is already a lot of complaints about this sort of class divide. And ads like this is exacerbating that while putting these vulnerable uh, populations at risk of getting into debt for honestly kind of silly reasons, uh, debt that they may not be able to repay. While fintech is good for getting easy loans, I guess what, what you're saying is that for these vulnerable groups who might not have been used to the concept of credit and interest rates and having to pay things back at a, at a much higher rate than they were expecting, this sort of fintech app, which is not just from Ant Financial, it's Huawei, but it's also, as you mentioned, JD and other internet platforms, it gets them into this sort of sick cycle of having to pay back things that they essentially couldn't really finance for pretty superficial reasons, as you mentioned, upgrading to first class, having a nice birthday, which is a lovely idea, but you know, that's not required of a nice father. Right. That's exactly right. And if you read, again, Anne's prospectus, it does say that a typical Huawei customer is young and internet savvy, but has unmet consumption demand due to the lack of a credit card or insufficient credit limits. So <laughs> the language is already pretty clear that they are targeting people, especially young people, I said earlier, rural people, but also young people is a huge target audience for these internet lenders, where these young people may not actually have that much financial savviness and are coming in perhaps into the job market for the first time, and may be very susceptible to overspending. And we do hear a lot of stories, as I mentioned in my introduction, of young people who get too deep into the cycle and can't pay things back. And so does that mean that the, we talked a bit about Sesame Credit, for example, and credit worthiness? Does that mean that these apps are not properly assessing credit worthiness? Sure. So I think that statement is not quite fair to the internet lenders. And I, I've spoken to a, a lot of these companies. I think what's really happening is that you have two different situations where you have like pretty honestly responsible lenders like Ant, maybe with their kind of aggressive marketing tactics, but overall they actually have a very good data-driven system. Many people think the best in, in China. And they assess credit worthiness in, in a very scientific way. And we can see from their loss rates that they're doing a good job keeping it actually below industry average in, in many instances. I think that 
a lot of the tragedies that we hear of, you know, this is suicides and whatnot are actually from a different type of lender. The sort of, we call them black market lenders who are not operating on, you know, data-driven decisions and really are just directly searching for the most susceptible, vulnerable, and using very misleading uh, or outright fraudulent advertising to get people in the door because their business model has nothing to do with creditworthiness. Their business models just get people in outrageous amounts of debt and having lots of crazy fees, reselling people's loans. And uh, you hear lots of horror stories where a couple thousand RMB initially quickly turns into tens of thousands of RMB in debt in over a very short amount of time, maybe like a year and a half or something like that. But you've also written before that there is real concern that Ant's products are reaching beyond the creditworthy and going well into the subprime. What did you mean by that if they are assessing people's credit properly and the interest rate is within the law and they're not, you know, they're not lending that much to people? Yeah, so what I really meant by that is that that's more of a concern going forward. I think right now at 500 million users and an average balance of 300, you could make the argument that, hey, you know, there's, like I said, about 400 million people in China on the urban uh, eastern coast who actually have pretty good income. Uh, It's more that going forward, if Ant wanted to keep up its growth, we would imagine they need to penetrate all the way down to, you know, their full billion users, in which case uh, having a $300 credit limit as one, by the way, as just one lending app, because there are so many other lending apps, it just makes people uncomfortable. I'm actually of the opinion that the tech companies are going to be able to handle the credit issue and be able to use their data to make sure default rates are not going to go up and that people are not really going to you know, go bankrupt because of these borrowings. But I can see the argument that they're not quite incentivized to do so, right? In the capital markets, we don't necessarily always reward them for being conservative, especially when, at least in Ant's business model, and I don't know if this is growing into too much detail, it didn't seem like the company itself was putting up a lot of capital. So it didn't have that much skin in the game. I mean, we can argue about the finer points of that, but that was the that was the argument that you know, a lot of the public had concerns over. That's right. And that's part of the regulations that stopped Ant Financial's IPO in, in its tracks the day before it was going to go public because the central government said, well, instead of the 2% that you're leveraging from your own balance sheets at the moment, you've got to have to have 30%. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me. Why do you have, where does your trust in these tech firms to regulate themselves come from? Just to have some <laughs> moments of optimism. I'm not necessarily saying I have the faith that all the tech companies will act in the, you know, best interest of society and not for their shareholders and their, their own management employees. But at the same time, what Ant was doing was not necessarily so egregious, right? So again, without going into too much detail, what they were doing had the potential to be disastrous, but I don't think it was necessarily 100% going to be that way, which is why another reason why the IPO was called off, I think, so close to the company going public because this was not a super clear cut decision. The 2% leverage that you're talking about, 30% leverage, 
that is, while that is true on paper, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And most people did think that the 30% was actually too high. So on, in a lot of businesses, like 10% might have been something mm-hmm. more reasonable. Yeah. But you're right in the sense that like 2% <laughs> got many people uncomfortable. When we when you say people, do you mean investors or the public? I think it was a lot of, so every, so again, the right, primarily got the regulators uncomfortable, but you know, the public, when they heard this, the thing is the public, I don't think fully understands why the business, uh, you know, grew the way it did. So I think that the public's perception, I think is important, but it's not as scientific. And I think it was more the, I care more personally about the regulators and investors. Right. So the general fear about these lending apps, whether it's Ant or something else, is the general fear then that it encourages a culture of borrowing without knowing whether or not you can you know, pay it back, driving people into much more unscrupulous loan sharks arms? Is that the fear? But if so, I mean, the West is, as we've talked about, no stranger to having credit. Is it such a problem for people to borrow? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you go ask a really good question because I think at the end of the day, it is a matter of the population's you know, overall financial literacy, right? A lot of these ads that we're talking about, I think if you put them in the West, people would just look at it and be like, ha who could possibly be fooled into opening up a JD, for example, borrowing account because they saw this ridiculous ad about upgrading to first class on the plane. <laughs> However, I think that when you place it into the context of Chinese consumers, again, at this time, you know, because of their relatively short history with credit, I, I do think it is a concern. And yes, I see people talking in public forums about we don't necessarily want to be in as deep consumer debt as some countries, such as the one I live in, the United States. So there is, at this point right now, because China is not quite there yet, there is an opportunity to make that decision, right? Whereas it might be, I guess it might be too late <laughs> for some of us here in the West. And of course, there's also the the cultural, I think in many, many East Asian countries, it is not just China, right? The, the concept of borrowing is a very heavy burden. So I think that will, that is also a huge factor here. And on what the party has been trying to do to solve these problems they see it, these financial regulation reforms, such as changing the leveraging percentage from 2% to 30%, or lowering the credit limit for how much you can borrow uh, through an app, are they having the desired effect? And are they stabilising and making things better for consumers? Or are they actually just more about clipping the wings of powerful corporations? I would say it's a mixture of both, definitely. It's not necessarily about curtailing the power for the sake of curtailing power. It's that you don't want to these systems to get so big that you can no longer control them, right? I often quote Ray Dalio when it comes to this, because if you talk to people in the China finance or fintech industry, a lot of them think that Ray Dalio had it right, which is that. And if it was if there were no rules imposed, could have overtaken the entire banking system in China. Again, it's still a very small part of that right now, right? It's 10% of consumer lending, etc. However, if if again it were left unchecked, it's possible that this single company because of its tie-ups with Alibaba, etc., could have done that. In which case, 
if it got to the point where it was really that big, then it becomes much harder actually to slap on regulations, right? Because then you are affecting a much greater part of the economy, right? And right now, you have 500 million people borrowing an average of $300, and you regulate the industry, and their credit limit goes down to $200. But that's that's fine. But what if this company starts becoming the sole or main source of lending for not just consumers, but businesses, they're borrowing much larger amounts. Then if you have any uh, sort of rule, then it might like slow down the economy, like in a more real way, right in a more tangible way. So I think this was preventative in that sense. And and that's a view, as we've touched on already, that's shared by the Chinese public, certainly, and some investors as well. Am I right in saying that what has been seen as a political wrangling between uh, the political top dog and the economic top dog in China in the West has actually been seen in China by ordinary people as something that ought to have happened? Yeah, yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. Again, I think, you know, the public's perception is important. It is not always fully accurate because matters of economics and regulatory policy are not really easy to understand for the average person. But that is generally the reaction. And I've like asked many, many people across many different classes and professions just to make sure, (laughs) you know, like I wasn't too far off. But yeah, pretty much. I think another thing, what people don't realize in the West is that Ant is such a dominant platform. uh, Ant Mm -hmm. and WeChat like a few other apps are such dominant platforms that you almost can't get away from not using them. So consumers actually have a lot of ire against these companies because in the West, you could be like, oh, I don't want to be on Facebook. A lot of my friends have deactivated their accounts and that's fine. It doesn't really affect your life. But deactivating your WeChat account or uh, canceling your Alipay account is a much bigger decision and a much bigger deal and will affect your life to much much greater detriment. Uh, so there is this sense of like, oh yeah, like these platforms really are getting too big and I want the government to ring them in. That's really interesting. And exactly, that's the opposite side of what we've talked about, Ray, in, in the podcast before, which is that these apps make life so convenient because everything is one in one place. But actually, it means that your life is much more in the control of big tech. And of course, big tech, as you know, has been a big topic and, and their power in the West uh, since since the Capitol Hill storming. Yeah, yeah. Like it's I feel like every story has, you know, two sides. It's always a double edged sword. There's never a pro without a con, no free lunch. So this is the opposite side. I don't think I know any. But do we know any hermits in China who are just, you know, Luddites who rail against using this sort of technology in every single aspect of their life, can insist on still using cash. Do you have any friends who still do that? Or is, are these apps just so prevalent? I don't have any friends who do that. But I, you know, again, China is a really big country. I actually do know people who are very anti these apps and will either refuse to use them or use them minimally. Because, yeah, again, there's also people in China who are like, I don't want to have these Chinese internet giants have my information and be able to track me and offer me my what other people might think are great personalized deals. But I don't want that, right? I want to stay anonymous and I want more control over my data. So there are definitely people like that. Yeah. And I think the 
point that you make about financial education is really important as well. Call me out if I'm generalizing here, but a lot of the rural people that we're talking about, as you say, China really is two countries. They often haven't even had secondary school education being completed. The other big group, the young, these are new graduates who, you know, suddenly given such a source of capital, probably single children who have never really looked after their own monies because they've been brought up by two parents focusing their attentions on just them. Do you think that's a generalization for me to say that these are the most vulnerable people to having that easy access to money? I don't think I think that's actually a pretty fair stereotype because I, for example, I did some work in rural China running a charity where we helped a lot of rural kids go to college. And so in China, you have to understand that number one compulsory education is only K to nine. So you're not guaranteed to finish high school. Uh, A lot of people actually end up not being able to go to high school and go to some form of vocational school. If you go to really poor areas in China where I was at, it's very obvious that even if people finished ninth grade, and they are technically literate in Chinese, they're not particularly financially literate. Actually, in fact, one of the things that a lot of our sponsored kids had to do is they had to go back during the summer and help their parents get loans for their farms from the bank. That was just a thing. Not only was it a pretty onerous process, but their parents, even though they could read and everything, just didn't have the knowledge to be able to handle transactions with the bank. So I can only imagine that's just one sample of the one billion people we're talking about. As for the young and educated, I think a lot of people I've spoken to in the West don't have as much sympathy because I think (laughs) we believe in more personal agency, right? So if you're a college grad and you understand why, uh, you understand these products very well, you understand interest rates and compounding and all this stuff, then is it really the platform's fault if you're over borrowing because, you know, you want that new bag from Prada or a nose job or something like that? However, I I do think knowing China as I do, I think there's something to be said that because a lot of these university grads actually are not going to be as mature as we might be here in the West because a lot of them have led less independent lives, right? They have basically been studying their whole life just to get into college. College often isn't a place where they get a lot of real life, real world exposure. A lot of them are quite naive when they do go into the quote unquote real world. Again, that's a problem the world over. I'm not excusing it, but I can understand the Chinese public has a slightly different interpretation of where personal responsibilities should lie and where the platform should be, quote unquote, more socially responsible. Mm. And I think, you know, from my experience in knowing, you know, other people my age in China, a lot of them grow up, as you say, less independent, but also a lot of them, you know, just in one way, they don't even know how to cook because they have been single children and their lives are so geared towards academics that a lot of various spheres of aspects of what in the West is seen as a rounded growing up experience isn't really offered to them because your parents do everything or your grandparents do everything. So I can totally see, you know, if you have this app that can lend you tens of thousands of yuan, why wouldn't you take that just to go on a round the world trip, which is what one advert suggested you do? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. And it's exactly that's exactly right. It's a little emperor syndrome that has been happening for a very long time because of only children in China, right? You have two sets of grandparents and both your parents 
with only one outlet to spend money on, and that's you. So you get really yeah. spoiled from an early age. And this happens all, for a lot of yeah Chinese people I know. Yeah, and I think the reverse side of that, and I wonder what you think about this, is the societal pressures that come with being a young person in China today. China has always been a completely, a very competitive place. From very young age, you have these university exams, Gaokao, where you're literally measured against, gosh, I don't know, tens of millions of other Chinese young people for very much fewer university places than that. And now in a workplace, we're hearing a lot about nine nine six, which is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, which is the working pattern that is seen as the white collar sort of standard. And meanwhile, they've got their elderly parents or and grandparents to look after, and you see that in societal ways as well because they're not really having children, even though the one-child policy has now become two children one. So I guess societal pressure for these modern Chinese twenty some thirty something year olds must be pretty big, and so they think. Well, let's go splurge when we can. Yeah, I think you're right. Like there is a sort of despair going on right now in China because the it's very much similar to what I observe in the states, actually, where people are like the good times are past. Right, my parents' generation、mm-hmm. saw the highest growth, and that's not going to happen for me. So I might as well enjoy life while I can, and. Actually, one of the most popular terms this year, I think, or not this year, last year, on Chinese internet is the concept of slacking off. So, and WeChat actually just did their 8.0, so like a very big app upgrade, and they introduced this concept called statuses. And one of the statuses they have, they don't have that many default statuses, but slacking off is one of them. And then the, the other ones that are emotion related actually made me quite sad. They're like depressed, insomnia. And then, I think out of four, there was only one that was happy. Yeah, I mean, if I were a sociologist or a philosopher, I might say that this is what happens when a society grows economically in such a rapid pace that, and and have, and it has such bizarre reproductive policies as a one-child policy that this is what happens to people growing up in that that they are feeling. All this pressure, but that's just conjecture. <laughs> right. I want to. I want to touch on this, which is not strictly related to this podcast. But I know that、yeah. you've been following the Jack Ma disappearance story、yeah. <laughs> quite closely.、Yeah. And for listeners who don't know, it's you know, a couple of months ago. This sort of speculation started that ah, no one's seen Jack Ma since this October speech that we talked about in the November podcast I did with Duncan Clark when the IPO was initially stopped, fueling speculation that Jack Ma has been disappeared by the government. He's reappeared this month. Totally fine, it seems. I'm quite bemused about this whole story and how it came about. Because how do you deny that someone hasn't disappeared if they are trying to lie low? The whole speculation was seemed to have been pretty unfounded, considering he's not exactly someone who goes out and make a speech every day. Anyway, he's not a politician. So what, what do you make of that? And what do you make of what it says about Western reporting about China? Yeah. So、uh, you know. <laughs> I actually I try to find out where this quote unquote rumor first started. So number one, I think it went really viral, partly just because again Jack Ma is the most visible Chinese entrepreneur in the West, right? For many reasons, because he speaks English, because he has this large company that everyone can understand, and he is a funny guy. He's very witty.、Uh, for his disappearance. My best guess is that it actually started off from a article in Chinese, where someone wrote about like, oh, fifty days into Jack Ma's disappearance. That that was the title, and 
you know, it sounds kind of ominous, but when you click through, it was actually an article explaining why he's laying low. Uh, however, if you were, I think, if you were someone else reading it and you maybe just saw the title, you might start asking like, oh, yeah, like where has Jack Ma been? Why has he been vanished from view? And because of China's history, especially more recently in the past few years where you've seen many prominent businessmen basically fall from grace because well, mainly because they actually did something bad. But I think it's very easy for people to make the leap like, oh, Jack Ma, his IPO got pulled. Uh, maybe he's going to go to jail. I, I heard that a lot. And like exactly like you said, I, I also felt the same. There was no way to prove that he hadn't disappeared, right? So his best way was to um, show up at this meeting. But even showing up at this meeting, I'm sure you saw this. There were a lot of people who were very skeptical and were like, he's live streaming from jail. <laughs> so... I think for me, I wasn't worried. I probably wasn't the only person to go on the record and saying that I wasn't worried about him, but I definitely was not worried about where he was, primarily because the PBOC, which is a regulatory agency now really overseeing a lot of this overhaul of Ant's business, they had a very official press conference. I guess you could call it sort of a Q&A with reporters. And a very, it was very detailed and it very clearly laid out in my mind that like Ant had not gotten itself into any serious legal trouble. And if Ant hadn't, and Jack isn't even an executive there, he's just the chairman, or he's not even the chairman, sorry, he's the founder. And if Ant hadn't gotten into trouble, then why would Jack? So it didn't make any sense to me that he would be any any sort of like legal hot water. And I... I basically thought it was, like you said, it was just him lying low and, you know, turning the heat down, what Chinese people like to say, like a cold treatment, you know, lowering the temperature so that people are not talking about this company all the time and starting to freak out, you know, creating a lot of a lot of froth around the topic for no reason. Yeah, well, that's really interesting, Ray, and do come back on the podcast again soon. Yeah, okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.